please turn with me to Romans chapter 5. We'll read verses 1 through 5, but as we said last week, we're going to look particularly at verses 3 through 5. And uh, we're going to talk this morning, we're going to, I trust, hear the voice of Jesus and have Jesus talk to us through his word in the foolishness of preaching, have Jesus talk to us about suffering, uh, which is what occupies Paul's attention in these verses, verses 3 through 5. So let's read beginning at verse 1. And uh, even as we're reading, let me encourage you to be calling upon the Lord himself to help us as we think about his word and try to think his thoughts after him. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope, this hope, does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Let's pray together. Lord, help us because... Um, because it's hard for us to imagine that we could, we could rejoice, we could boast, we could exult because of sufferings, in the midst of sufferings, because of sufferings. Lord, help us by your Spirit to know how this can possibly be. Um, teach us, speak to us, minister to us, through your word, Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. You may be seated. So we come to these uh, verses that deal with this matter of suffering, um, and particularly the idea of rejoicing or, or boasting or exulting because of sufferings. Um, I want to make sure we have these verses, verses 3 through 5, um, in their context, and I want you to remember that this whole section, chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8, this whole section of this letter deals with the matter of assurance. That's, that's really what Paul's big concern is here in these, in these verses, in these four chapters, is, is for his listeners to have assurance that being justified because of what Christ has done, being declared innocent, being accepted, being declared righteous uh, because of what Jesus has done, they really are safe. They are really and truly, permanently, fixedly safe. They're safe and secure. He deals with a whole lot of things in these four chapters. But what parenthesizes everything in these four chapters is this emphasis on security and safety, and Paul wants them to have assurance, right? These three words that we looked at last week. We have peace with God. 
And, and by grace, through faith, we've been established and are standing, rooted in grace, having been given an access and introduction into the very presence of God. Peace with God, access into his presence as sons and daughters, as children, secure and safe in his love. And we have hope. We have hope that the final outcome of this thing is, in fact, the glory of God. We hope in the glory of God. We're going to come back to that because this idea of hope shows up in verses 3 through 5. And then you remember, I think, at the end of chapter 8, which is the end of this section, Paul says, look, there isn't anything in the whole of the creation that will ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus again. That's the parenthesis. Peace with God, access, hope. Nothing will ever separate you from the love of God. And in the midst of that, there is union with Christ. And in the, in the, through these chapters, there is union with Christ. There is the prospect of the creation being liberated and set free. There is adoption. We've been made sons and daughters. You see, it's all about assurance. Reinforced from every angle in one way or another. That's what Paul is concerned, that his hearers understand. If you've believed in Christ... If you've really entrusted yourself to Christ, you're safe, you're secure. You have nothing to fear. You have hope. So Paul then comes to these three verses, verses 3 through 5. And having said what he said, that we have peace with God and access to the Father. We have this great hope that will never be taken away. He says there's even more reason for rejoicing. As if that weren't enough. There's even more reason for rejoicing. You can rejoice in your sufferings. Literally, you can boast in your sufferings. You can exult in your sufferings. Your tribulations, your difficulties, your sadnesses, your heartaches, you can boast in these things. You can rejoice in these things. Really? The word that's translated here in the ESV, rejoice, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, is a word that Paul uses when he writes to the Corinthians, chapter 12 of his second letter, verses 9 and 10. He's referring to some really severe trouble, some really hard suffering. If you read 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians is about suffering, and it's about the comfort that can come as we give comfort to one another in the midst of the things that we suffer. And and Paul, in referring to some really severe trouble, says that he prayed three times that God would take it away. Three times he asked the Lord that he would remove this thing, this what he calls a thorn in the flesh on one hand and a messenger of Satan on the other hand. Please take it away. Please take it away. And God answers his prayer and says no. He answers his prayer and says no. And he speaks to Paul and says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul, in response to that, says, Therefore, I will boast, I will exult, I will rejoice all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, I am content with weakness insults, 
hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. That's the idea here in Romans 3. Same word. I boast. I exult in these things. Now why? How? How is it possible? Come on, dude. Get a grip. I mean, how is it possible to exult, boast in heartaches, in sadnesses, in griefs, in sorrows, in losses, in disappointments? How is it possible? I mean, this is something very different from what you encounter in the rest of the world. I mean, think about it. When you go out into the world, suffering is bad. We want to avoid it. We want to find some way to medicate it. Or we just try to suck it up and endure it and just get on the other side of it. But Paul is saying, no, no. It's actually possible to rejoice in the midst of it. And even rejoice, exult, boast because of it. It's actually possible. How is it possible? Let me give you four things. You take a quick look at the clock and see if we have time for four. We never have time for three. How can we possibly have time for four? Let me give you four things that it seems to me arise naturally out of this text. They're just little headings for you to kind of think about as you reflect upon this passage. And I'd love for you this week to reflect upon this passage and these four things. First, the inevitability of suffering. The inevitability of suffering. It's inevitable. Second, the purpose of suffering. God's purpose in suffering. And that's kind of the biggie for the morning. God's purpose in suffering. And third, a tonic in the midst of suffering. A tonic in the midst of suffering. Or a tonic for suffering. And then fourth, our response to suffering, the inevitability of suffering, God's purpose in suffering, a tonic for suffering, and our response to suffering. First, the inevitability of suffering. Let me just make this observation that one of my teachers, heroes, one of my mentors, if you will, has made, David Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's he's one of my dead friends, but one of my regular sources of great encouragement. Let me just make the observation that he makes in a sermon on this passage. He says it is simply amazing how much attention the New Testament gives to the matter of suffering. It's amazing how much attention the New Testament gives to the matter of suffering. How frequently all of the New Testament writers seek to provide guidance and help and warnings and comfort and encouragements and wisdom regarding suffering. The Gospels, the letters, and above all, the revelation, above all the revelation, are filled, filled with wisdom, guidance, help, and comfort for Christians who are suffering. They are filled with preparations given to Christians who, if they aren't suffering now, will suffer at some point. John 16, 
Just think about the Gospels and the things that Jesus says and the things that the writers of the Gospels under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the things the Holy Spirit through the writers of the Gospels preserved for the benefit of God's people across the centuries. I'm just going to give you a few passages. John 16, 33. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. You will. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. In the world you will have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Jesus said, if the world hated me, you can be sure it's going to hate you. If the world opposed me, you can be sure the world is going to oppose you. You can expect to suffer for my name's sake. Acts 14, verse 22. Paul and Barnabas returned to some churches they had planted, and they returned to preach and teach. And the text says they returned to these churches to strengthen the disciples. And in the midst of seeking to strengthen the disciples, Paul tells them, quote, it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. It is through tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. It's inevitable. It's inevitable. New Testament is not surprised by it. New Testament, in fact, encourages believers to prepare themselves for it. Those are the preparations I referred to. I'll give you some more passages from the letters. I'm not going to read them. I'm just going to encourage you to make notes of them. 2 Corinthians chapters 1 through 4 and chapters 11 and 12. Colossians 1, 24 and 25. 24 and 20, verses 24 and 25, where Paul says, It is granted to you not only to rule and reign with Christ, but also to suffer for his name's sake. James chapter 1, 1 Peter chapters 1, 2, and 4. The whole book of Hebrews. And as I said, the book of the Revelation. Last book of the Bible. Let's be clear about this, okay? The last book of the Bible is not given to us to sketch out some scheme of history. That's not why the revelation is given to us. It's not written so that we can sort of decode the stuff that's going on around us. It's not given to us so we can sort of uncover the mysteries of what is happening in history. Here is why the revelation is written. The revelation is written to and for Christians who are suffering. And it is written to and for Christians so that they will see that the lamb who suffered and was slain before the foundation of the world is the king of the kings and the Lord of the lords. Fifty times the word throne appears in the revelation. And the lamb is always on it. The lamb is always on it. The revelation is written to encourage Christians who are suffering that Jesus is sovereign, that he is moving all of history to its final conclusion when the devil and his kingdom, the whore of Babylon, and all of those who follow the whore of Babylon will be destroyed and all of creation will be restored and all of God's people will be set free. The Bible begins in a garden and the Bible ends in a garden. A garden that is free of the ravages of sin and death. The revelation is written to encourage Christians 
in their present moment who are suffering that Christ is victorious. Now, I mention this because Christians can, I do, you do, I suspect, we can and we do think, usually think, when we are suffering that something has gone wrong with us or with God, right? That's what we tend to think. When I'm suffering, something has gone wrong with me or something has gone wrong with God. And the New Testament wants us to understand. Paul is saying this at this point in this letter because he wants these Roman Christians to understand in the midst of your sufferings, nothing has gone wrong. Not with you and not with God. We tend to think in the midst of sufferings that something may have gone wrong. It's prevalent. I run into it all the time. The other thing that we can wrongly wrongly conclude is that when I become a Christian, if I give my life to Jesus, if I turn to Jesus and from all of the foolishness and lunacy and idiocy and everything that I find in the world around me, I turn away from all of it and to him that somehow I'm going to be lifted above, elevated above, raised above all the troubles and heartaches of this life. When I first became a Christian 40 years ago, there were bumper stickers. Some of you who are old enough may remember these. Jesus is just like a bridge over troubled water. Right? That's what... You want to avoid suffering? You want to avoid the troubles? Come to Jesus. You know what the history of the church and the scriptures suggests? Come to Jesus and you're signing up for more trouble. Come to Jesus and you're signing up for more trouble. How Jesus Made a Mess of My Life is a book I want to write. Remember what I said, Jesus said it. Actually, a servant is not above his master. If they hated me, they will hate you. Peter says in his first letter, don't be surprised at the fiery trial you are experiencing. Suffering is assumed in the New Testament. It's assumed. It is part and parcel of the Christian life. But second, there is purpose in it. Let me encourage you. Nothing, nothing, is wasted in the economy of God. Nothing is wasted in the economy of God. God has purposes in this. And you see these purposes, you see this end, this goal, this aim in verse 3. I just want you to notice that there is a progression in these verses. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. There's a progression here. Suffering produces character, endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Hope, there's that word again. It's the word, same word that you find in verse 2. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Hope is an extremely significant New Testament word. It's not hope the way we think about hope. New Testament hope 
anticipates something out there in the future that is sure and certain. When we use the word hope, there's no certainty about the thing we're hoping for. I hope I get a pony for Christmas. Every little, I had three girls. I mean, every girl, I don't get what it is with girls and horses. Every little girl I've ever known has wanted a horse. I hope I get a pony for Christmas. There's no certainty about that. There's no assurance about that. There's no absolute, inviolable confidence about that. It's wishful thinking. It's hopefulness. But it isn't New Testament hope. Hebrews 11.1 gives us, in effect, a definition of faith and hope. And it shows us how these two things work together. Write this verse down and, and again, think about this this week. Faith, the writer says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Listen to the words. Assurance. Conviction. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. See, there's a confidence. The writer of this letter has a confidence. There is a, a settled certainty about his hope. There are things that are out there in the future. He's looking forward to them. He sees them out there somewhere in the future. They are real. They are a reality that is accepted by faith. They are unseen things, but they are sure and they are certain. And he has them. He has them. And he is waiting for their arrival. And his hope, see, this is the psychology of it in Hebrews 11. His hope is attached to those unseen things. His hope is attached to them. You read through the rest of chapter 11 of Hebrews, and all of these people, Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abram and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Gideon and Samson and David and Rahab, all of those whose names are mentioned as well as those whose names are not mentioned, people like Isaiah and Deborah, and Esther, and Jeremiah, all of them, verse 39 says, though commended by their faith, did not receive what was promised. They didn't receive what was promised. See, their hope is fixed on a reality. It is attached to a reality. It is a future thing. It is out there. They continued to hope. They persevered. They continued to believe. They attached their hopes to these future things because they were sure of them. They were certain about them. And why were they certain about them? Because God promised them to them. God spoke and promised these things to them. Let me put it to you this way. Their hearts were attached to those things. What was that hope? It's the hope that every real Christian has. It's the hope of final restoration. It's the hope of liberation. It's the hope that comes from the promise that God made that the day would come when sin and death and evil would be vanquished, the evil one overcome, and everything set free from its bondage. 
Now, what does suffering do to that hope? What does suffering do to that hope? It increases it. It intensifies it. That's what suffering does. Throughout the New Testament, suffering has effects. It produces things. That's the word that's used here in the text. It produces things. It it has effects in people's lives. It produces endurance and perseverance and character is molded and shaped uh, through suffering. And what is character? Look, biblical character is not being a moral person. Okay? We tend to think of character. We have a profile of character. We know what character isn't. We have a picture in our head of that. And we know what character is. We have a picture in our head of that. Biblical character, real and true character, molded by suffering as people learn to persevere and endure, real and true biblical character, is weakness that finds its strength in Jesus Christ. It is helplessness that finds its dependence in Jesus Christ. Biblical character is me, moment by moment by the grace of God, more and more entrusting myself to this unseen God who is really there. And the effect of all of that is that my hope gets intensified. Suffering produces endurance. In order for something to become strong, what do you have to do to it? Right? We're back to muscles again. Remember? Faith. Abraham, his faith grew strong. How does faith grow strong? Faith grows strong through faithing. (laughs) Belief grows strong through believing. God grows faith by putting us in places where we have to trust him. Faith doesn't grow strong if I'm strong. Faith doesn't grow strong if I'm independent. Faith grows strong when I'm weak and helpless. And God keeps putting me in places where my weakness and helplessness are put on display so that I can learn what it means more and more to entrust myself to him. Hope is the same thing. This hope gets strengthened, gets increased, gets deepened through suffering. Think of it this way. Suffering is like a surgery. Suffering is like a surgery. Who wants a surgery? Who signs up to have somebody come at him or her with a scalpel and say, I'm going to open you from your neck to your navel and we're going to cut stuff out? Oh, yeah. Who signs up for surgery? A person who signs up for surgery is a person who knows she is sick. A person who signs up for surgery is a person who knows she is sick and who knows that the surgery will make her well and she will rejoice because the suffering leads to healing. The suffering is the instrument in the hands of a skilled physician who inflicts a wound not to crush, not to kill, but in order to heal. 
and restore. Suffering is the scalpel in the hands of a skilled physician who also happens to be your loving Heavenly Father. I've told this story, I think, before here. I've only got a few of them. I'm one of those old guys who tells the same stories over and over again. When Katie was 10 years old, we submitted her to a surgical procedure because she had a congenital deformity in one of her sinuses, and that sinus wouldn't drain, and she kept getting infections. She had black circles under her eyes, and we could never get over these infections. So we went to the ENT guy, and he took us into his office, and he showed us a cross-section of the brain and the sinus cavities, and he told us what he was going to do, that he was going to go up through a nasal passage into this sinus, and he was going to drill a hole in that sinus so that that sinus would drain. And he showed us this little thin piece of bone separating that sinus cavity from the brain. And he said, I've done this procedure hundreds and hundreds of times. I know what I'm doing, but I want you to understand there is a chance that I could ding that little piece of of bone, crack that piece of bone, and all of this stuff in her sinus could bleed into her brain and it could make her very, very sick and possibly kill her. Now, in an instant... This is the thought that ran through my mind. Time out. I'm going to medical school. I'm going to learn how to do this. Because there isn't anybody in the universe who loves this child more than I do. And if anybody is going to hurt this child so that she might get well, it's going to be me. What is suffering, my friends? Suffering is the scalpel in the hands of a skilled physician who is your loving Heavenly Father, who loves you deeply and desperately as evidenced by the cross. Greater love has no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. Jesus is the skilled physician. who is performing this surgery on your souls. And here is what he is doing, my friends. Here's what he's doing. He is detaching your hearts from hopes that will only disappoint you. He is surgically disconnecting your hearts from hopes that will only break your hearts. And he is reattaching your hearts to the one hope that will never disappoint you. Himself. Himself. Look at what Paul says in verse 4. He says, this hope does not put us to shame. This hope does not disappoint. This hope does not let you down. Think of all of the hopes. Think of all of the hopes you have had across the days of your lives. 
This is a good exercise, folks. I'd, I'd encourage you to do this exercise. Get alone for an hour with a legal pad and make a list. Make a list of the hopes that you have had across the days of your lives. Health, the perfect body, the perfect boyfriend, the perfect girlfriend, the perfect report card, the perfect bank account, the perfect house, the perfect car, the perfect friendships, the perfect world, the perfect marriage, the perfect children. Really, think of all of the hopes you've had. Hopes which are not in themselves bad hopes. Read Tim Keller's book. Read the book, Counterfeit Gods. It's a great book. There are good things that God gives to us as good gifts. But as a very good friend of mine is in the habit of saying, good gifts make bad gods. Good gifts make bad gods. Make a list of the hopes you've attached your hearts to. And then ask yourself some honest questions about these hopes. These hopes that have been dashed. The disappointments that have come because those hopes have been dashed. Ask yourself the question, is this disappointment crushing? Is it paralyzing? Is this disappointment a source of bitterness? Is it a source of cynicism? And if you begin to answer the question, yes, yes, these disappointments are crushing. These disappointments are paralyzing. These disappointments have created bitterness and cynicism in my soul. Then what I want to suggest to you is that those hopes have become gods. And they are gods that cannot. They cannot. They cannot satisfy the deepest longings of your souls. And what God does in suffering is disconnect me from hopes that cannot satisfy, that cannot save, in order to attach me and attach my heart to the one hope that can, himself. That's his purpose. His purpose is not to diminish your hope, His purpose is not to make you cynical or to make you bitter. His purpose is to free you from cynicism and bitterness by freeing you from the idolatry of lesser hopes so that your hearts may be attached to the one true and great hope, himself. That's why we can rejoice. We can look at these things and we can say, I see what God is doing. That's what God's purpose is. And then third, there is a tonic that he gives. I looked up the word tonic in a dictionary this week. 
and I got lucky. It's the perfect word. There is a tonic that he gives. You know what a dictionary definition of tonic is? A tonic is a medicine that strengthens and invigorates. A tonic is a medicine that strengthens and invigorates. And what is the tonic that God gives us in the midst of our sufferings, in the midst of the difficulties that we encounter, in the midst of the heartaches and the disappointments and the sadnesses which are real and which we don't minimize? We're going to get to Romans 8.28, and I'm going to preach probably 15 sermons from Romans 8.28. And one of those sermons is going to say this. When Romans 8.28 says, God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28 is not saying all things are good. The Bible never says that evil is good. It never says that good is evil. Sadness, disappointment, heartache, suffering, these are real sadnesses. And we don't minimize it. We understand what God is doing in the midst of them, that he's detaching our hearts from lesser gods, lesser hopes to attach our hearts to the one true God and the one true hope himself. And in the midst of them, he gives us a tonic. And that tonic is the love of the Father himself poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. He gives us himself even in the midst of the struggles, the disappointments, the sufferings. As I said at the beginning, when I'm struggling, when I'm plagued by doubts, when I'm plagued by temptations or struggles, my greatest fear is that there's something wrong with me, that there's something wrong about God, that God has withdrawn from me, that the Father will become embarrassed or ashamed to be associated with me. But exactly the opposite is going on. God in grace and mercy in the midst of the struggles pours out his love upon us into the deepest recesses of my heart through the Holy Spirit who is given to me. That's the promise of the scriptures. He gives me a tonic to strengthen and invigorate me. And that tonic is his love poured out, poured out, lavished upon me. When I was flunking out of college at 19 years of age in Mount Pleasant, Michigan, at Central Michigan University, flunking out of college, knowing that I was headed for Vietnam if I didn't get a high draft number, not a Christian, not knowing what would happen to me after May 14th of 1970, the last day of class. I was walking through the campus early in the morning, four o'clock in the morning, and I heard a young woman crying. Being the chivalrous soul that I am, I went to her aid. To this day, she does not know the aid that was given me. I found her. She was seated at the base of a tree. She was weeping profusely, deep, heavy sobs. And I said, is there anything I can do? Can I, can I help you? And she said, 
my fiance just called me to break our engagement. And then she said, but I will be okay because God will take care of me. That is the love of God poured out in the person of the Holy Spirit, reaching into the deepest recesses of the heart of a 22-year-old young woman whose name, 21, 19, 20, I don't know how old she was. I don't know her name. I don't know where she is. I do know we're going to cross paths again, and I can't wait to tell her the story. that in her response, in the midst of her suffering because of her experience of the love of God in Christ Jesus, in her moment of pain, she spoke a word of hope to me. There is a God in the heavens who cares, who cares for people in the midst of their suffering. Chris and Eddie Matthews were friends of ours in western Pennsylvania back in the early 80s, nearly 30 years ago. Their first child, Janelle, was born with a brain tumor. She lived to be seven years of age, and then she died. She went through surgery after surgery, therapy after therapy, moments of hope, moments of disappointment, and finally she died. And Chris Matthews, the mother of this child, spoke these words in my ear, I would not wish what I have been through on anyone or for anyone. And I would not trade what I have been through for anything because of what I have learned about God. That is the love of God pressed into the deep recesses of a breaking heart. That is the love of God being poured out in the person of the Holy Spirit, bringing comfort and hope to a breaking heart. That is suffering increasing hope and being expressed in a recognition of God's faithfulness in the depths of despair and disappointment. So what is our response? As we begin to wrestle with these things and struggle with these things and seek to come to terms with these things, The clouds begin to part. The sunlight begins to break through. And hope begins to be a living and breathing and experiential reality, not just an idea in my head, but something deep in my bones. And what comes out of those bones is rejoicing. Suffering is inevitable, but nothing is wasted. God has purpose in this. And he gives us the tonic of himself and his love, his presence, his faithfulness, his goodness in the midst of it. So that to the amazement, to the amazement of the world, a mother who has buried her seven-year-old daughter can say, I wouldn't trade this because of what I've learned about God. That's rejoicing. That is a deep and abiding hope. That is a heart fixed, not upon the lesser hopes of this world, 
but the hope that is found in God himself who's going to finish what he started. Free you, free me, free the whole creation from all of this suffering, all of this anguish, all of this darkness, all of this death, so that we might enjoy him in fullness forever and ever. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father. Thank you that for me, for each person in this room, I affirm this before you. I say this before you. I say it for them, for those who do believe it. I say it for those who can't believe it right now. I say to you, Father, in your presence, with you present among us, that nothing is wasted. And for that, we praise and thank you. And I ask you that you would make our hearts glad, that you would enable us to rejoice because of what you are doing to our hearts in and through the sufferings of our lives. Give us this same great hope. Give us this rejoicing, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We have you stand and sing. We'll sing number 128.